Welcome to the In Awe Podcast, where we amplify women and empower a community through the mission and their message. I am your host, Sarah Johnson, English teacher and school principal turned author and entrepreneur, living my own leap of faith on a mission to teach masses. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at at Sarah S.A. Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to the In Awe Podcast so you can join me each week as I feature women who will leave us all in awe of their impact on our world. Hello, friends, and welcome to our series on overcomers. These stories are the fresh air that I needed to give my own spirit a boost, and I know that they are serving you well. Our guiding quote for the series is from Dr. Maya Angelou. You may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. Today's guest deeply inspires me, and I'm so grateful to be able to share our conversation with you. Amanda Florence Goodenough, she, her, hers, is a dedicated educator operating from a cultural humility framework to center and elevate historically marginalized voices, promote belongingness and mattering, disrupt structural inequities, and advance intersectional social and racial justice. Amanda has over 15 years of professional experience in equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice efforts within a higher education setting. Currently, Amanda serves as the Director of Campus Climate at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, while also being a part-time doctoral candidate in UWL Student Affairs Administration and Leadership Program. On campus, in addition to facilitating workshops, programming, and assessment, Amanda has provided leadership for awareness through performance and the hate response team for over a decade and has co-founded Rise Up racial and intersecting identity symposium for equitable university progress and the nationally growing hate bias response symposium. Amanda's focus area includes campus climate culture, cultural humility, hate bias response, anti-blackness, racial justice, multiculturalism, microaggressions, bystander intervention, student activism, power, privilege, oppression, and healing centered engagement. Just a few, right? Amanda resides in Wisconsin, where she attended the University of Wisconsin-Platteville for her bachelor's degree in communications before heading to the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse to earn a master's in college student development and administration. In her personal life, Amanda and her partner enjoy raising their multiracial kiddos and helping them make meaning of the world. In this episode, we discuss Amanda's role as she serves both the UW-La Crosse community as well as a wider network of organizations to passionately disrupt structural inequities in our schools and communities. We talk about her experiences of overcoming loss of her father at the start of the COVID pandemic and the challenge of her role through the racial pandemic as well. She shares with us her experience growing up in a community where acts of blatant racism caused her family to have to overcome daily challenge and how she now uses the story to deepen her impact on equity work today. Amanda opens up about overcoming the loss of both her parents in a deeply poignant way, and she shares beautiful truths and wisdom for us throughout this interview about rising up from adversity. Friends, our conversation went longer than most interviews I publish here on the podcast, and I am honored to share the entirety of it with you. There is a mission in Amanda's message, and I honor deeply the sacrifice it is to share our wounds with others so that they might heal through our stories. I know this community will love Amanda's heart, her truths, and the way she weaves in wisdom throughout her entire story to teach us all that overcoming is a continuous journey. It is with great honor and deep joy that I share with you Amanda Florence Goodenough's Overcomer Story. Welcome, Amanda Florence Goodenough to the In Awe Podcast. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. How are you today? I am I am here. <laughs> I was going to say good, but that might not have been completely honest, but, uh, but I'm definitely excited to uh, just connect with you and be in community and, um, and yeah, and just be here. 
Well, you're in the exact right spot because the only way we do things on the In Awe podcast is through reality and authenticity, and we're kind of living in an interesting time. So would you do me a favor, Amanda, and just give us a little bit of a current context so that my listeners can get to know you just a little bit better? What are you up to in this world? Sure. So um, I am... I reside in the La Crosse, Wisconsin area, and I'm an educator uh, at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. I uh, provide leadership for an office called Campus Climate, the Research and Resource Center for Campus Climate, where we do a lot of uh, work with justice and equity and just trying to uh, push the the campus forward in, in those regards and uh, make it a, a better, more inclusive and welcoming and equitable place for, for everyone. And so that is my, um, my full-time professional uh, job. And then I also am uh, a full-time mother and, and partner and a daughter, although I'm, I'm not sure what, <clears throat> how to label that at the moment. I recently lost a, um, my father and my mom passed away about 13 years ago. And so navigating sort of this, this new reality of being um, kind of like a parentless daughter, at least in the, in the physical sense of um, a parent. And so this past year has been a, a lot of the aftermath and fallout of, of, you know, what that means in closing out an estate. So I've been doing a lot of that as well. Um, and then just kind of stumbling through and trying to survive all that was 2020. Um, and so, I mean, that was a, as a tough year for a lot of people. And my, um, my reality was, uh, you know, learning that my, my dad got sick in February, just kind of out of nowhere. And then, um, uh, ended up passing away right when sort of the pandemic was, um, at its height of just like hitting us and then having to move through his, his death and then that and the pandemic. And then there was the racial injustice pandemic and, you know, and work and life and then trying to figure out what it meant to, you know, work from home and be a, you know, full-time um, director of campus climate and a full-time kindergarten teacher and a full-time daycare provider and, you know, <laughs> partner, all of the things. Um, so it's, it's been a lot that I guess that's a big question now that I, I think about it as far as what I'm up to. Um, but so, so that's the, the short answer. All of the things. I think that my listeners just took in a sigh, like just a breath um, as I was, because I did. And as I was listening to you processing through all of this, and as we start to peel apart your story, what we're, what we might find is that there's so much common ground in some ways that there are things that we have overcome that we can say, yes, I am on the top of that hill, conquered, we're good. And there are things that we're just like consistently having to overcome right now. Um, and once you think you're you're past it, you just have to keep battling that giant in front of you. I don't know if that might be part of your story, but I can definitely sense that it would be given all of the different roles you're serving. When I think about that um, task of directing for climate right now, oh my goodness, what a tall order. <laughs> Yes. I mean, it's, um, it's always been challenging, you know, as challenging as it is rewarding. Um, but, uh, I don't, I'm not sure a word even exists to describe, um, the weight of it, you know, during, during this past year, um, and just like, so, so many conflicting feelings. And then, um, you know, a lot of the work is, 
uh, is about, or at least my approach to the work is about like holding people's stories, you know, and those can get heavy. And I feel like completely just privileged. And it's such an honor that people trust me with, with their stories. Um, uh, but it, it's hard when it gets to be really heavy. And, and when you feel like, you know, like, I think many of us kind of want to be, you know, helpers or want to make things feel a little bit lighter, or easier, or better for other people. And when you just feel at such a loss that like you're not able to do that or you're not able to go anywhere with that or honor the stories in, in that way that um, could provide some sort of like justice or healing that everybody deserves. It's um, it's uh, it's a different kind of challenge. Um, and so, yeah, definitely in the midst of what's been going on, um, you know, across our country over this last year, um, it's, it's put me, uh, to the test in, in many ways, but I think it's also created some perspective about, um, just like the, the leadership that I, you know, that I, that I want to be able to be a part of. And that I think that we need, um, as like organizations or as, um, you know, a country or whatnot to, to move us forward. And so it's been challenging, but it's also been, there's been a lot of perspective taking as well. Mm, You know, I literally, Amanda just said to some of my close friends who are leading schools in the environment and, you know, you and I are talking literally days after the event at Capitol Hill here in the United States. Um, And I know what a challenge it has been to lead schools, for example, because we know that our schools are microcosms of society. And I just kind of trying to pour into these wonderful women who are trying to lead during this time when there's so many dynamics at play. And not not just, of course, the COVID pandemic, but as you mentioned, the, you know, racism pandemic and the social justice issues. And then uh, just the uncertainty and the politics and all of that. I said, thank goodness for leaders like you right now who are willing and um, keeping themselves, I would say, in the fire. I mean, it's a lot right now. And so kudos to you (laughs) for learning and growing through it. And, you know, I obviously I believe that people are in the positions they are for a time as this. And so I'm grateful that you are there and serving the UW Lacrosse community and greater. And I'm really grateful that you would come and share your story here on the podcast, because I can only imagine how fresh and hard these topics can be because they're, as you said, heavy. You know, it's like a beautiful burden, but it's a it's a heavy one right now. I'm assuming that you're kind of carrying throughout your work. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for saying that. And I I love like the connection with education that that we have. And for anyone listening to it's um, it's something that I the longer that I'm in my uh, in in these roles, the more I I feel a, a responsibility that that we have and, you know, have been working with some. Um, some schools as well, like in the K-12, um, K-12 districts, and which has been really exciting and another way to look at it. And also just having two young kiddos want my, um, my son is in first grade. And so like, look, starting to look at, you know, the school system through, through his eyes and kind of having flashbacks to some of my experience and, and, you know, certainly have made some strides since then, but seeing how much work there is yet to do. And I just, you know, I look at some of the events that are happening um, that aren't necessarily new. You know, I think that there's just um, uh, perhaps there's more critical 
mass at the moment. Perhaps there's more social acceptance. Perhaps there's more um, just like publicity around it. Um, but and I just think, you know, like for like there are certainly are pockets and great, um, you know, leaders in education. And I, you know, it's hard to not also look at the you know, the gaps and what's, what's missing. And, um, you know, and I, I think about, um, like even at, in higher education where, you know, we, we see some of these happen and we kind of wonder like, you know, how can this happen? And, and I think like, you know, we're responsible for that. Like we have a, a role to play in, um, in like in educating citizens and, um, and beyond. And, like how it, how is it acceptable, especially in this moment, you know, to, to know that, you know, I think that there are too many students that can come into our institutions and I'm looking at a higher education lens right now, but come into our institutions and leave our institutions unchanged when it comes to some of these things, as far as like being a, a part of the solution when it comes to like, um, anti-racism instead of part of the problem, right? Like, especially if you want to, but also if you're not paying attention and don't realize that you have a role to play. Um, and so I just feel like, uh, we have such a great responsibility to, um, to do more and to do better and in a more intentional way to create, um, you know, like students and human beings that will, um, work to improve the social condition for all of us, right? And find that, find their voice and their place in the world and how they can contribute in positive ways. Like, I I just think we have to be asking ourselves these questions, you know, about like, where are we falling short and how can we do this better or do it differently? Because there's just, I don't know that there are, um, there's enough, in my opinion, like bold leadership that, um, that can, you know, change some of that, um, for the better, but I just, yeah, it's hard to not make those connections as we're seeing how things, you know, play out and, um, and to say like, you know, there's been some of this talk on my social media about like, this is not us, you know, this is not America or when things happen at schools, you know, and it's like, this is not who we are. And, and, you know, and I'm always of the, 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 the school of thought that like, no, this is exactly who we are. Like, like this is us. We have to own this and we have to acknowledge it. And, and until we do that, you know, we won't be able to figure out how to change that and how to do better. Oh, it's so good to hear you say those words. It's just fresh for my, it's refreshing for my soul right now to have a really good conversation about this topic. Um, with you, such a wise person with a lot of knowledge and a lot of background and a lot of um, passion for the topic to say that on this podcast, I'm so grateful that you did. And I'm thinking, you know, my reaction is keep your eyes on it. Don't look away and name it. You know, you can't say this isn't who we are, see it, (laughs) but it's so hard. (laughs) The work is hard. And, um, oh my goodness. I'm, and I have to just say again, I'm not just kind of keep patting you on the back, but I know how hard and, and important your work is. Um, and it's all of our work, but the fact that you are in this titled role in this university setting right now is so powerful. And I love hearing you say, we've got to do better because you're in a position and you've been in a position. And I believe that you'll be continue to be placed in positions to serve in this way. And in fact, I don't want to keep going further without saying on this podcast, because many of my listeners are firmly aware of my connection with one of my co-authors, Jessica Johnson is the one who referenced you because you do um, 
services, not just, you know, inside of the institution, right? But one of the things you also do is provide um, professional development, correct, around equity. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yes, you know, I've um, I've always believed in community engagement and being, um, you know, on something that we've we state as a value at UW Lacrosse, and I think that can look a lot of different ways. And um, and I don't always know that we um, embody that or rise to that, and in, in um, as well as we could, you know. And I just think, especially when you talk about like education being knowledge, and um, and sometimes I think like uh, there's so there's so much that is inaccessible to people who might not have. Um, had the ability or the financial means or, um, or even just the interest to, to pursue a higher education. Um, and, and yeah, like there's like, you know, this, like a whole nother world out there that we can be sharing, you know, in different ways with folks. And so I know there's always been this question of like, is a university, um, you know, a part of the community or is, um, or is the community part of the university? And so, and I really want it to like, I want that, that relationship to feel, um, just more like connected and more cohesive and have like a community really feel like they're a part of our university. And so I've always been seeking out ways to connect, um, you know, beyond, uh, beyond the walls of UWL. And so over the years, I've done some trainings and workshops here and there for, um, for organizations or other schools or, um, conferences. And then maybe a couple of years ago, somebody, um, somebody randomly found me on, uh, on the internet. Uh, they're looking for uh, the topic of cultural humility because they had heard about that, um, and wanted to, um, have somebody do a keynote on that. So they must've Googled cultural humility in Wisconsin and, maybe my name came up. I'm not really sure how they found me, but, um, but that opportunity put me in front of this, like this huge K-12 audience that was, I don't know, maybe around 300 people or so, but they like all represented these different school districts. And then that kind of snowballed into another opportunity and another one. And then, um, the one, um, where, uh, you had mentioned Jessica's connection, um, uh, the superintendent of the, one of the school districts that I'm working with right now, um, was at a conference that was for superintendents. And so, um, you know, I found myself as a keynote in, um, at this conference for like all the superintendents in the state of Wisconsin. And, um, and it was really intimidating, um, because I just like, I, you know, I think I just got in my head, of course, and it was like, um, you know, what, uh, like I'm not in the K-12 world, you know, what, will my message like resonate or make sense? Will they like write me off? And, but then I also was like freaking out a little bit because I'm like, there's a lot of power in that room. And, um, and so whenever I'm given this like platform or this mic, I, I want to use it responsibly. And I know that a lot of the issues that I, I have dealt with and experienced in higher ed, um, they're systemic. And so, you know, many of these same issues are going to show up in, you know, in other, um, colleges and universities and also in K-12, you know, or in, um, in corporate America. And so, so I knew that I had that familiarity. Um, and I also know that it can be sometimes challenging on the inside of organizations to, to be that disruptor and to push and to challenge the status quo. Um, I know that, you know, many of our institutions and organizations aren't friendly to 
to that activism, I will call it, um, even if and when we say we want these things and we want change. I know that it like it puts a target on people's back. I know that um, in the words of Paul Gorski, people have to spend their institutional likability or organizational likability. Like I've 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 seen that firsthand. Um, and so I know that, um, you know, there, there's that challenge and resistance. And so I wanted to make sure that if nothing else, I could use that platform responsibly and, and push and speak truth to the power that was in that room. Um, it, because there might be some, you know, somebody in these schools or organizations that, that it's just not safe to do so. Um, and so, so that was another opportunity where, again, I was put in front of like these entire K-12 audiences and, um, and it's just snowballed from there where there's been outreach and for, um, to come and do like a talk here and there or like consulting. And so more recently I've done, um, I've been able to do more of what I would say consulting where I'm working with, um, schools and and not just doing a keynote and showing up and leaving um uh, although you know there can be some value in that but also it's sort of like okay now what um but where am i i'm getting to build a relationship with these like school districts and learn um the culture and learn like and get to meet with the students that make them up or some of the staff and um and then you know be able to um to share some of my um uh experience or my um I don't always like to call it expertise, but um, just some of the wisdom that I've kind of gained through my um, time and, and really push them to be better. And I, I absolutely um, sort of use my experience as, uh, as a person of color in a predominantly white school system, you know, like moving through that system in Wisconsin. Um, I absolutely use that as a compass in my work because when I talk with kiddos um, that are moving through the K-12 system right now, they, I'm like... I'm so disappointed that their stories echo mine. Like they, like, I mean, all these years later, the same things are happening. Um, and so, you know, I just really try to tap into, um, into that experience, which I think a lot of people can relate to whatever side you're on. If you're like, Oh, I was that one person of color, um, you know, or, um, or like coming from predominantly white communities, um, because our state is so segregated. Right. And so I think like I saw a statistic in, um, in the paper just within this last year that Wisconsin is the most racially, um, segregated state in the country, you know, and, and then there was like another statistic that mirrored that, that talked about the educational, um, gap between white students and students of color, um, it might have been a specific um, demographic of students of color, but that we also were ranked the worst in that regard. And I mean, it's just, it's unacceptable, you know, and I think that there are people who care and want to do better, but I also feel like um, we've like, in some ways we've lacked the urgency. Um, and it's just to, to, yeah, to hear these stories that are, that could have been the ones that I, you know, was, I'm telling somebody all these years later, it's not like nobody should be okay with that. I definitely agree with you. And I'm just so grateful. It's been fun to listen to the passion in your voice, kind of on an uptick when you're sharing this deeper impact that you didn't expect that you're kind of thrust into this space with these superintendents. And by the way, those are my people. I love picturing what that room looks like, which we we know is going to be dominantly male and dominantly white in the superintendent world (laughs) in the state of Wisconsin. Um, I've done that stats and those research myself. And I know that your message is perfectly timed and needed. And I'm so grateful that you've been at that table and that you continue to show up 
and share. And I also just wanted to shout you out a little bit here to say that I'm excited that you are a woman of color here in the state doing the work. And as um, you don't know my story very well uh, right now, but until we become best friends after this podcast and then we hang out all the time, but (laughs) but I've been, I'm up in the Northern part of the state, Northwestern part of Wisconsin. We're here, like the stats there's, we have 7% in our CESA region of superintendents are even female and they're all white otherwise. Um, So that's the demographic around here. And that's just kind of the context in which I'm, you know, leading and used to, but it's so fascinating to me because I work as an adjunct professor for an institution in La Crosse, the Turbo University, and I've been able to work with um, individuals who are in that particular area that have so much better uh, awareness and diversity training than so many of us around here. And I can't help but think that has to have something to do with the work. Um, You know, you have to be having a ripple effect at some point in those institutions. I just wanted you to hear that because it's clear to me there's a difference. And I also wanted to say and make sure that the listeners hear this, you know, regardless of the demographics, this is information and this is content. These are skills becoming knowledgeable and kind of deconstructing your own systemic, you know, racism inside of you. Um, We all have it. We all have bias. That piece is for everybody, no matter what our demographic numbers say. I know for me leading in schools, I have a a deep passion and have had this yearning inside of me to do better for the longest time. And I just remember having conversations and hearing, well, you know, that's not us. The gap isn't us. And it's like, (laughs) it doesn't matter. These like this conversation and this information are skills and knowledge that everybody needs, no matter their background, right? Oh, incredible. I mean, it's such a disservice to not, you know, or, and I think sometimes it's like the, the one or a few people of color sometimes might like that, you know, if there's a presence of, um, of these communities might like make us think or like, oh, we need to like do this or that. And I'm just like, you should be doing that anyway. And, um, and more so like if you have no people of color, because the world is not, you know, whatever, like small community, you know, um, many people in Wisconsin are coming from. It's so much bigger than that. And I get to like, to see so many of these students um, who, you know, move on from K-12 and, co- and come into higher ed. And I'm just like the, like the unlearning, first of all, that needs to happen before mm-hmm. like any learning, you know, takes place. But it's just like, um, I remember teaching a class that was about like social justice and equity. And, um, and that's a tough class, you know, and you're up against like, like lots of times it, it feels like you're challenging people's values, you know, and viewpoints. And, um, and, and really it's like, you know, like, let me have you like, think about those. And I don't care where you stand at the end of the day, but like be able to back that up, you know, and, and understand why you think that not just like, you know, you were told to like, you know, uh, take this stand. And, um, and so there, you know, there was always feedback for, um, I don't know that any professor didn't have this feedback, um, at some point from like student evaluations about how the, you know, the class was so biased or this professor was so biased. And I just remember at one point, um, just naming that, you know, trying to get ahead of it in the, in the classrooms. Um, and, and just saying, you know, like, think about that for a moment. Like, you know, if, um, 
if you're thinking like, you know, I'm biased or this class is, is biased because this is the first time you're hearing something that challenges your viewpoint, you might want to consider that your entire education up until this point was biased. Not me, you know, not, not this class. And, but, and I think that's what happens lots of times, especially when we think we have the luxury and the, and the privilege to like, but we don't have to address these issues because it's not here or, you know, or these people aren't here like holding us accountable or giving us reminders. And I think all the more reason to like be even more intentional about like broadening, um, you know, our students and our employees' worldview, um, you know, and it's just, yeah, I think that it's, it hurts everybody to not be engaging in those conversations. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just want to state publicly, I was woefully late to the, you know, fraction of knowledge that I have now compared to before. And I know that I'm woefully behind in what I will continue to learn. And I guess that's part of why I'm just so glad that we went down this path and that we went so deeply down this path because uh, it's really important. And I also know that your story, which we haven't been able to touch upon enough, we're going to get there, is really about you using your ability to overcome what you experienced as you alluded to and using it now. Would you go down the path a little bit with me so that my listeners can hear a little bit about, you know, the racism that you experienced growing up that has kind of propelled you into this space of passionate service? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always say, you know, this isn't just a profession. It's, it's actually very personal. And, um, when I, when I think about what drives me and keeps me going, um, keeps me, you know, allows me to stay in this work. I, um, I think about the seeds of justice being planted very early on, um, uh, you know, earlier than probably what was, was fair, um, which is where I've been, I've been seeing many like quotes and sayings come across my social media feed, but I think there was one that said, you know, if, um, uh, if children of color are old enough to experience racism, then white children are old enough to learn about it. Um, and so, right. Yeah. And so I think like second grade was like the first, um, moment that I can remember, um, like recall, like, you know, something is, is, is different here. I'm, you know, I'm different. And so we, my, my dad is African American, um, um, we also have some, um, native American ancestry. I just haven't still learning a lot about that, but Blackfoot Indian, I believe is, um, the tribe that we come from. Um, but I've mostly like, uh, recognized the, the, the black, the African American identity. And then my mom, uh, was Mexican and, um, a fair skinned Mexican woman. And so my parents, we, we grew up in Waukesha and which was like, um, I didn't even realize that I think until I, I got to college that like Waukesha is perhaps the most um, like conservative county in in the state. Um, but uh, we, you know we lived in this little community, this neighborhood, and I think there was a really strong um, Latinx influence. And, um, and so I, like, I don't know that I, I realize kind of even just like politically or, um, values wise where like maybe the greater uh, county was at, but cause I have, I have like fond memories of Waukesha. Um, and then when I was in second grade, the middle of my second grade year, we moved to McQuanago, um, which was, uh, you know, a much smaller town, um, was very white. Um, uh, and it, this was the mid eighties and they just simply weren't ready for us to move there. And 
you know, I'm looking at this from a second grader's viewpoint, but you can bet I had questions, you know, as I grew older. Um, and especially in, in college and grad school, I started to ask even more um, pointed questions to my parents because, you know, I had this like story, but there were a lot of holes in my story and I needed them to fill those in for me. And so between what I experienced and the conversations that we had after the fact, uh, I had learned that this community was very, um, just pretty much blatant, blatantly and overtly, um, uh, just clear that they did not want us to, to live there. And so my dad had talked about this neighborhood lynch meeting. That's what he had called it, where, um, it, as I remember, my parents, I think, went around and introduced themselves to the to the neighborhood. And then at some point, and this was before we even closed on the house, uh, as far as I can remember, um, they had this meeting. And the meeting basically was telling my parents that um, they didn't want us to move there. Uh, and so my dad, I can remember one direct quote that my dad would always tell me. And um, that one family said, we moved here from Milwaukee to get away from you people. And we won't live in a colored neighborhood. And and I always say most reasonable parents would, um, you know, would, would find a different place to um, to raise a family, you know, with a, a, a friendly or welcoming committee. But my parents are just like stubborn and proud and, it, you know, they, they were going to stand up for what was right. And, um, and so in the way they did that, they just said, well, then you can move because we're staying. And and from what I know, there was a neighbor who put a for sale sign up in their yard like a week later, and then they were gone within a month. And I think another neighbor may have followed. Uh, and then the ones who stayed made our lives pretty miserable. And, um, you know, my parents tried to protect us from a lot of that. But I always say, you know, they couldn't come to school with us, although my mom was always in the principal's office um, because there was like a lot of explaining always, you know, that had to happen Um but, you know, so they couldn't protect us from everything, but this was just, a, I mean, the town was relentless. Um, and so, and, and then there was something that I, I won't get into all the details. So I don't, we have a ton, uh, we don't have a ton of time, but there was something that I feel like, you know, I was called coded racism where they, um, where people like, try to, um, enact their racism through a way that maybe won't seem like, you know, it's racism. And so, uh, so then there was an effort that turned towards my dad's just like way of making a living where he pumped septic trucks or he pumped septics, um, for one of his like four jobs. And so, so that became a source of contention and they claimed that, um, you know, this area wasn't zoned for, um, commercial vehicles and, um, and that, you know, we couldn't have, so that, that became like this huge fight and it ended up going like being, um, going on for years. I had learned that my dad got fined every day for three years. I, it was like, I don't know, over a hundred dollars or so a day. Um, you know, and this was his way, this was his job. Um, and, and, he knew that he could have that vehicle there because the family, the white family who lived there before us had a boat business that, you know, ran out of that, that pole barn. And so, um, so he knew, my parents knew that we were being treated differently. Um, and so he fought that. And, and even though it meant he'd get fined every single day, um, and in the end, fast forward, you know, my, my parents ended up, um, driving around the community and taking pictures of all of these driveways that had commercial vehicles, you know, from school buses to, um, dump trucks to, you know, you name it. There's all sorts of people who had these vehicles in their driveways. And, and then they printed out these photos and they put them in photo albums and made a photo album for everybody on that town board. And, 
and my parents went to you know that next meeting and um and handed out these photo albums and they asked you know are you um are you finding all these other people? Because if you're going to find me, then you need to find them too. Um, and, and the the town board people were like, well, you know, well, nobody's complaining about all these other people. And my dad said, well, I am. Uh, and, and that's kind of where it ended, you know, because it never really was about the permits and, um, and they certainly weren't going to find all these other people because it was about us and, and that they didn't want us to live there. And so, um, but they had threatened to throw my dad in jail if he didn't pay the fines and he still refused. And, um, I mean, it was just, it was horrible. And, um, and just this last year, especially when he got sick and was in the hospital, he relived a lot of these stories. And I hate that you know, those were some of his, um, his last memories, but I, I think he bottled up a lot too, and just had to, had to share some of that in the end. And that was like, just in February of last year, I learned that there were pipe bombs that were put into our mailbox and there were death threats that my family had, um, had endured. And so, and I think it was in grad school that I learned that my parents had sued the town of McQuanago for racial discrimination. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the community that I grew up in and the, you know, as a second grader and, you know, the, the story continues on after that, but that was a, a pivotal moment and something that I think back on a lot in my work. And I just think nobody should have to experience what we experienced. And if I can be a part of of making things better than I will. And that, especially when it comes to racism, but also knowing that all of these isms are connected, all oppression is connected. Um, then like, that's the role that I want to play, even if it makes just a difference for, for one person, you know, or one small corner of the world, like nobody should have to have experienced that just because of who they are. I want to thank you, Amanda, for giving that story to me and to my listeners. And it's hard to, it's hard to take in, um, you know, as somebody who loves, you know, kids and, and thinking about what that must've been like for you going through the school system and the way you center the story on how your parents, you know, had to fight that, but protected you, um, and I'm assuming siblings or one or at least one or two. I didn't get that piece yet. Yep. Yeah. Two sisters. You know, that's, that's um, a level of stress that you're correct. Nobody should have to live through. It should be a, a place where you're, you know, comfortable. Well, we know these stories exist and they're existing today, as you said, um, no matter what we want to say, this isn't who we are. We know that those things are happening and, and the way you've been able to turn your healing, which I'm assuming is still continuing um, into service is so inspiring to me, deeply inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to mention too, because I don't want to really want to go off this topic, but I wanted to just lay some honor at the feet of your father. Um, you know, here we are not even a year into this great loss in your life and you had started out with that and we've gone down this beautiful conversation. Um, just knowing what that feels like to lose somebody close during this pandemic um, is it, it just makes my heart just literally pulsate with pain for you uh, because I have experienced, I lost a friend and my grandmother, but not my father. And so I just wanted to kind of just speak his honor and praise in the moment and bless you and uh, for using his story, even at the end here, I know that you'll continue to do that for good. Um, And I want to honor it here and just say, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you so much. You know, and one of the things that I think about um, when I was talking about the superintendents, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, one of the audiences that I was most nervous for, um, 
and at, you know, at the end, and I share, you know, the story a lot and because it's hard to disconnect it from, you know, the work and especially from education. And like there, I mean, there are many, um, additional stories, you know, especially moving through the education system that I can point to as far as just, we talk about overcoming, um, uh, but yeah, my, my dad hasn't seen, you know, he knows the work that I, I do, um, but he's never really been able to, to see me. And so I invited him to come to that, um, that talk with the superintendents that last September, it was in Madison. And, um, you know, and I was like, you know, come on, I need a friendly face there. And, uh, and so, and I, I wasn't sure if he was going to come, you know, he just, uh, uh, I don't know. He's just like non-committal, and so I didn't know until like I saw him that morning and show up, you know. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, he's here!" And so um, I just I didn't know how special that moment was, you know. And to, like I didn't know that he would pass away, but like five months later, uh, but so it was so neat that he got to to see me um, amplify, you know, his story, my parents' story, and um, and Im- try to embody the best that I can, you know, their boldness. And at the end of that session, I, uh, I got a standing ovation, which was like, I don't get standing ovation. It's not something that I, um, that I seek, but I also know that like my message and my, um, my approach to work isn't necessarily like, um, it's not about standing ovations, you know, and lots of times I'm making people uncomfortable and I, and I invite people to feel wonderfully uncomfortable and to lean into that discomfort. So it's not usually met with a standing ovation. And I'm like, I don't take that personally, you know, like I I don't seek that out, but I, I got a standing ovation from, from this room, you know, that was full of superintendents. And, um, I, I wasn't ready for that. And then the person who had introduced me came up afterward and, um, just, you know, just to thank me. And then she had, like, they didn't know that my dad was in the audience until the very end when I was talking about, you know, my dad was fined for, um, I think I was like for months, you know, and I looked at my dad and he like, he moves his hand, his like thumb up saying like higher, you know, higher. And I was like, her, for you know a year and he's like no higher and um and so then he mouthed to me you know three years and I was like for three years you know and they're like seeing me and like have this conversation with somebody in the front of the room so I felt like I should explain like oh you know this is my dad everyone and they had seen pictures of him because I put the newspaper clippings of the the lawsuit against McConaughey um I put them up in my presentation and so they saw you know this younger version of my dad but I think it was just surreal to them like you know, get to the end of that story and to, to know that this man was sitting in the room. And so that, that person, you know, thanked me and then, um, and then asked my dad to stand up. And so the entire room gave him a standing ovation too. And it was just like, I mean, it was really neat in that moment, but thinking about it now, like that he, I think that's some of what pains me about, um, you know, so much of, um, my story, which I know, you know, echoes in other people's story is just that, yeah, you know, when we endure certain hardships or injustices, I think, I think, you know, sometimes the critical mass comes around, but it isn't always in the here and now. Um, I think, you know, we eventually get on the right side of history, but um, uh, it isn't as, as immediate as I wish it would be. And so I think like all the fights that, you know, my dad was drafted in the Vietnam War and my mom and dad had, had to fight to get married because they're an interracial marriage, like everything, you know, in his life was, was a fight. And, um, and I don't know that we, um, just even like as a country, as a community, like 
acknowledged all of that and, and thanked him and, uh, and apologized, you know? And, um, and so, I mean, I know it was just like a standing ovation. It was just like this room of superintendents who didn't, you know, just got this glimpse of his story, but it was, it just was this moment where I was like, finally, you know, he's getting to, um, he's getting some acknowledgement of like everything that he went through. And, um, I felt like it was, I hope that it was some validation of that, um, you know, it, it mattered and that he made a difference. And, um, and I hope that story sticks with, with people, especially like now that he's gone, you know, like that, that will help him live on. Well, I know I'll never forget it. And I feel deeply honored that you would share that tie through on the podcast because there's something truly special about your message, Amanda, and it being so inextricably tied to your parents and this beautiful idea that, you know, the fight is hard. And when you're in it, um, overcoming, I think I already said this once, but I feel like it's worthy saying again, is that we we're overcoming it in the midst of things. And to say that we are overcomers, we might not be on that that hill yet. Um, but your dad had that beautiful moment before the end of his life that his fight mattered and it's mattering. And I just thank mm-hmm. you so much for letting me share it here on the podcast. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. So I never want this conversation to be done, but I guess I probably have to get to those two standard questions. Are you, are you ready for those? <laughs> probably not, but you can throw them at me anyway. <laughs> Okay, my new best friend. The first question is, um, if you could write a letter to yourself at any age or stage, what would you say? So I love this question. And it's actually a a practice that I've, um, I've done several times in my life. And I've actually have, we've we've done this with, um, you know, some of our programs at the university with college students, just having them like write a letter to, um, uh, to their former selves and then sending it to them long after they've forgotten. I think it's such a powerful thing. And so I love the question. I don't know that I have a, a, a beautiful and uh, profound response, but I think, um, you know, certainly with the story that I shared, um, I think about my second grade self and, you know, not being able to make sense of everything that was going on around me and, and internalizing so much of it too, right? Like what it meant to be different and what like all these like uh, norms of, um, of beauty and of, um, uh, success, you know, like they often didn't reflect me. Um, and it's hard to not internalize that. And so, um, I don't know exactly what I would say, but there's like, there's, so much that like wants to go back to that second grader and, um, and just, and that was the, you know, that, that moment I had said, we moved to McQuanago, but I, I can remember being greeted, um, by students, um, my peers that, uh, that's when I first had heard the N word. I remember somebody calling me the N word and, and everybody else laughing, um, and never having heard that word before, I, I went home and repeated that at the dinner table. And it was just one of many long, painful conversations that, you know, we had to have as a family. Um, and so I just, I think about that person and I, I think I'd want to tell her that you, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to endure the hate and the discrimination and, and the microaggressions, even the, the things that seem small and minor, they're still like, they still have this macro effect. Um, and it's okay to feel that even though it's not right that it happened, but that you will grow to be strong in your voice. You'll grow to be strong in your conviction and strong in your presence and strong in, in the way that, that, 
you and I'll even say we, especially as, as people of color and the way that we love despite it all and the way that we forgive, um, despite everything that, um, that we, that is just so unfair and we shouldn't have to deal with, right. Um, that you will be strong, um, but not because of it. And that's something that that's where my letter changes a little bit than from what it might have been several years ago before I started working on my healing. Um, I always linked my healing, like you'll be, you'll become strong because of this, right? You're a leader because of the adversity you face. And, and maybe a part of that is true, but then that, like that, that puts me in like a, a prison with, with that, um, with white supremacy really. Right. And with, um, with the, like just all of the pain and I want to be more than my pain. And so I would want to tell her that, you know, you, you will grow to be strong, but not because of that. You'll grow to be strong because it's in your DNA. Like as, as a woman, it's in your DNA as, um, as a, a, a black woman, as a Mexican woman, as a multiracial woman, as a sister, like you'll, like you are strong because you always were strong, right? And it's not because these things happen to you. Like that doesn't define your strength. Um, yeah, you're strong because of because it's in your DNA, right? And so that's been something that I've been trying to hang on to as I've been working on healing and trying to be more than my pain. I try really hard to not connect that resilience to to the oppression um, because, like. I don't, I know that that is part of my story, but I don't want that. Like, that's not the complete story. Right. And then, um, and then you, I think I, I'm constantly still then internalizing this oppression. And so that's, it's a work in progress, Sarah, but I'm, um, the letter would sound somewhat like that. Um, you know, and I also will just say, since we talked about my dad too, that I, there's many letters that I, I need to write. And maybe after we get done here, I, I might go and start writing some of those, but there's a letter that I would write to my grieving selves. Um, and this is, you know, at age 28, when I lost my mother, um, in my like early thirties, when I survived to, um, miscarriages after a long, um, journey of infertility, that was really, um, painful. And then, um, getting to this place of, um, more, a present place of, of having to cope with the loss of my dad. Um, and I, I don't know what that would say either, but I, um, just, you know, that I remember after my mom died that I, I didn't know how tomorrow would come. Like how would the, like, it just seemed like time would stopped and there, there wasn't going to be a tomorrow, but that like, you know, I, I tell myself that tomorrow will come. And again, going back to that strength, like, um, there's a quote that I've always hung on to that says, you don't know how strong you are until strong is the only option. Um, and to survive like losses of such magnitude is, um, such an ultimate test, but I've learned over and over that the human spirit is, um, just like, like is strong beyond like, it's like in, in this non-human way, right? Like it, the human spirit is like strong in this, um, in this way that isn't understandable, if you like to the human mind and that grief is a process and to, you know, to just be patient and to move through it. And that, um, I had heard, uh, 
someone say that, you know, grief is love with no place to go. Um, and I think that that's, that's really mm. true and it speaks to me, but then I also want to think like, you know, like, yeah, when I grieve my dad and he's not there when I want to call him and, you know, I, I can't, you know, there's this love that wells up in my eyes and there's, you know, in some ways it feels like there's no place to go with that. But in other ways I can just look around and I like, and I love my kids harder, you know, and I love my partner harder and I love, um, my friends and my family harder. Um, you know, I love the things that I'm passionate about harder. And, um, and so, you know, there is a place to go with it. Um, uh, but I think it takes sometimes some like, again, healing and redirection and, and being okay with just that, that grief is a process. And of course the losses are, um, uh, you know, are when you love something that much, like loss is going to be something that you have to, you know, we have to navigate, like that's the price of love. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for all of that. I think it's so beautiful. Um, and I, and I keep hearing kind of woven throughout all of this is just this continuous idea that you can be overcoming in the midst of all of it. And, um, and I love to hear your wisdom on all of this. I, I love the wisdom about the ideas that that oppression that you went through was not what made you stronger, but maybe they're just like the pock marks of your strength along the way. Um, you know, evidence of, of that strength that was always inside of you, no matter what that story was going to play out as, is that a fair way of kind of looking at it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And that's such an empowering message for everybody. It's a universal and empowering message, but I bet it's going to speak to somebody who needed to hear that from you today in a new way of thinking. And so I really, really appreciate that. Um, and one more, just kind of putting a pin in your your um, beautiful wisdom that you just shared is this idea of, of grief. I love that you said that when you think of your dad and, you know, it wells up and it doesn't have anywhere to go, you can let it spill back out um, to those present with you. And I really respect that. Yeah. If listeners find themselves in a pit of fear or doubt, what could you say to help them rise up out of it? There was somewhere where I was just thinking of, um, you know, a one word where I, I thought of just like breathing, you know, many times I've, when I've worked with people, we've, we've done even just like this collective deep breath together. And I'm sure I've learned that from somebody else, but I, I just didn't realize how many times we stop breathing. Sometimes we forget to breathe when, um, when there's so much doubt or so much fear, or, you know, anxiety or unknowns. And, um, and it's a powerful thing to, to just breathe. Um, and I think about exhaling, um, or like, or even the movie waiting to exhale. Um, and just like what it means and feels like to exhale, you know, like, and to, um, that like, usually that just happens kind of naturally, but to, to be in a place where, um, you know, if we're feeling stuck to, um, to very intentionally figure out how we can just be present with ourselves and center ourselves and, and allow ourselves to exhale. It's like, it's this incredible act that I, um, I've only come to appreciate more recently in my life. And, um, so that would be one thing for sure. Um, like not just breathing, but actually like exhaling, like a, a good exhale, you know, um, it's just, it's everything. It's been really re recentering for me. Um, but then, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that I would just say like knowing that knowing and believing in your worth, um, you know, understanding, you know, how and why you matter, but also just that you matter, um, and, you know, being your own compass, but also like hoping that, you know, we're all lucky enough to 
to have or to build a village of humans that surround us with, you know, love and validation and inspiration to, um, to reach our fullest potential or to, you know, help us take that, that leap. And, um, you know, and sometimes people I think look to just like to, you know, family for that, but not, not everybody, um, you know, comes from a, a loving family or a family that can always like show up for them. And so I know like this idea of choice family has been something that I've really latched onto, um, uh, within my experience in higher ed. And so even like, you know, sometimes people think like, I don't have these people in my life or my family is like, um, dysfunctional or like, or especially with all the politics that are happening, I think it's really caused a rift, um, uh, you know, in within and between family members sometimes, you know, and, um, and, you know, I hate that for, for people, but I also want people to know that like, you know, there can be choice family too. And, um, and that I think we all need that village. And so if that isn't something that has just like happened organically for, for some of us that, um, that you can, you can go out there and find it and you can build it. And there are other people that are just like, are, you know, are waiting for, for you to invite them in. Um, and so I know that I am better because of the people I surround myself with, um, especially the young people or students or the youth. I always say now, I think I can say youth now that I'm like in my forties. Um, but they like keep me so grounded and give me so much direction. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it can look all sorts of different ways and, um, ages and whatnot, but having this like intersectional coalition, um, people that are like invested in you and believe in you. Um, especially in those moments when you might like struggle to, uh, you know, to, to believe in yourself that has made all the difference. But I think ultimately it's getting to that place where like, of course you like, you know, you benefit from being surrounded by that, but like, you know, what if we could all get to a place where, um, where we can like tell ourselves those things, you know, or tell, tell ourselves like the messages that we, we, um, you know, we tell our, our, our loved ones and our best friends, you know, I don't know that we're always as kind, um, to ourselves. And so getting to that place where it's just like, yeah, you, like I said, you know, your worth and, um, you know, that you matter. And, um, I mean, that's a brave and revolutionary act. And I think like the possibilities are endless when we get to that point, you know, and it's not like you just arrive and, you know, you're there. I think it's always this like work of, staying grounded in that and reminded of, of that. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know that we arrive at it, but just being able to like, to get there and then hang on to, to that, that sense of worth and mattering is, is something I would offer that I would hope which could have value for, for somebody out there. Yes. I'm so glad that you went there. Um, you know, to summarize that one, we got breathe exhaling, which is good. I'm glad I haven't heard about waiting to exhale in so long. Um, so that, and then, you know, this idea of having community, I love um, speaking about choice family. And then finally that piece about, um, you know, brave and courageously loving yourself, that radical self-love that we struggle with. And I think that has to be part of the journey inward. And I just love that you shared that with us. You have been a deep inspiration to me. I needed you right now, Amanda. You've said so many things that landed with me that I just know that my listeners are really going to appreciate as well. Would you do me a favor and let the listeners know, which of course I will link the best way that they could get a hold of you if they want to engage with you after this interview? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I would love that. I'm always, I have, yeah. When I talk about the village, even, you know, like, Hey, maybe I can be a part of someone's village. Like I would love the connection. I'm always looking for that. And so, um, email always works. Amanda good enough at yahoo.com. Um, 
I uh, also have my professional email at UW Lacrosse, which people could could find me at. I'm on Facebook um, and Instagram. I'm not always like super active, but I, I do check that out and love to connect with people there. And then I, I should also say that I've um, recently joined a, a team of speakers and consultants and trainers um, uh, and I'm a co-lead with a business called Social Responsibility Speaks. Um, and so we will have a, a website at some point um, launching hopefully in the near future. And then I'm also looking to I don't have a, a name for it yet, so we'll have to get there. But also looking to just um, to also have my own uh, business kind of on, on on the side to continue some of the um, other like consulting and uh, speaking opportunities that I've really enjoyed doing. Um, so so all sorts of ways. But um, but yeah, please connect if anyone's interested or wants to hear more. It's awesome. I know that my listeners will be definitely. Um getting that and I will make sure to link it. And of course, no matter when you're hearing this, whether it's fresh, my friends, or if you're hearing this years down the road, we know that Amanda's going to be using her passions and skills to serve well. So be sure to check her out. Amanda, I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for coming to this interview with such an open heart and sharing so much of you and your story that is really beautiful and inspirational about how you are overcoming and you are an ultimate overcomer. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. I continue to be completely awe-inspired by every single guest on this podcast, and I am so grateful every time you choose to share, rate, review an episode. It matters so greatly to the mission and the message of our guests, and I appreciate every time you help one another rise by lifting up the message. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you being a part of this awe-inspiring community.